Bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice, and we're excited to share they've recently launched dedicated CPU instances. If you have build boxes, CI, CD, video encoding, machine learning, game servers, databases, data mining, or application servers that need to be full duty, 100% CPU all day, every day, then check out Linode's dedicated CPU instances. These instances are fully dedicated and shared with no one else, so there's no CPU steal or competing for these resources with other Linodes. Pricing is very competitive and starts out at 30 bucks a month. Learn more and get started at linode.com changelog. Again, linode.com changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Logo podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stachowiak, editor in chief here at Change Log. Today, we're talking all things text mode with Lucas De Acosta. We logged his post how I'm still not using GUIs in 2019. It's a guide focused on making the terminal your IDE. And we talked through his terminal starter pack, which includes NeoVim, Tmux, iTerm2, and ZSH by way of OhMyZSH, his rules for learning Vim, the awesomeness of CLIs, and the pros and cons of graphical and plain text editors. So Lucas, late in March, we logged your blog post, how I'm still not using GUIs in 2019. And in that post, you said GUIs are bloatware, terminal rules, this is a guide to the terminal. What I find kind of interesting about you, not only about this blog post, of course, that kind of gives this full summary of how to use the terminal as an IDE, but the fact that you have the right command, the colon W command tattooed on the back of your ankle. That's super cool. Yeah, I, I remember I've, I've done that. And uh, last time I've been in San Francisco is, is, is actually my first tattoo. Um, after that, I've got uh, 22, but like that one is the one I like the most. So it was like the first time I was traveling in San Francisco. So I think it was like the, the proper place. And at the time I've like, I've, I've been using it for, I think two years, three years maybe. And I was just like really passionate. I just couldn't stop like, you know, uh, talking about it. And, you know, every day I was finding out new things. And um, it's kind of like, Vim is really interesting because the more I learn, the more I, I feel like I don't know anything. You know, it's, it's one of those things. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite interesting. It's like a it's such an amazing piece of software. There's so many so many things. It's it's quite nice. Quite like it. Yeah. The interesting thing about this tattoo is that it's it seems like at least based on the picture that it's on the back of your heel. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So that yeah, means that as you're uh, walking away, is, is it like a, a a sign to the person behind you reading this, or is it just like by happenstance that you put it on the back of your heel? Actually, uh, I put it there because I think it was the less painful place. Uh, <laughs> and it was also visible enough. Uh, but uh, is it the ankle honest, or the no heel? One, like the, on the, the foot ankle, my ankle. The yeah. ankle. Okay. Yeah, my ankle. Yeah, but actually, no one ever uh, talked uh, to me about the tattoo like before I ever like said anything. Uh, I remember like I was walking around on uh, I think it was Fluencom. Uh, and I, I was expecting someone to talk some, to, to say something about the tattoo, but actually I think no one noticed, um, which is, uh, quite disappointing, but, uh, it's fine, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
So, Lucas, there's a guy that lives here in Omaha. He has a, a big mustache, like one of those Monopoly Man mustache, you know, with like the the big, you could like twirl it, you know. And I see him at the deli sometimes. And on the side of it, he's like a fix-it guy or a painter. I can't recall exactly what his business is. But on the side of his his business truck or his minivan or whatever it is, it you know, it's got the mustache. And he's, he's worked it into his name and his brand. And so I was talking to him about the mustache. I said, you, there's no way you, he's had it his whole life now. He's like in his 50s. There's just no way he could, you know, get rid of that mustache. He's stuck with it. He's, he's worked it into his, it's who he is. And I'm just curious if you feel like, you know, you can't quit Vim now. Like you're stuck with it for life because you're the guy with yeah. colon W on your ankle. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely stuck with that for life. Like uh, I've thought about trying Umacs. Uh, I got to say that. But, you know, it's just, uh, it's just not who I it's am. It's too late. It's too late for you. Said. Yeah, it's too late. It's too late. Yeah, it's too late. <laughs> well, what began your, your love story with this, with this text editor? Uh, so many people love Vim. We have a hashtag Vim party channel in our Slack team, uh, which was a play on JS party. It was like, we should have a Vim party because so many of the people on uh, the JS party podcast are Vim users. And people tend to love or hate it. There's, you know, learning curves. Some people never get over that learning curve. There's jokes about, you know, Vim, why can't I quit you? We've made plenty of those mm. jokes over the years, you know, on Twitter. My was the singularity conversation. I think you said there's people out there trying to quit Vim as we speak, I believe. It was on the right. show you said that. Yeah, so I'm always joking about that. <laughs> and I think everybody, yeah, it's a joke that's well used, maybe overused at this point. But um, I'm always one to beat a dead horse. That being said... Why did you fall in love with Vim? This is obviously core to your idea of doing everything in the terminal, not using GUIs. Vim is a core piece of that, NeoVim specifically. So tell us how you fell in love with it and what you like about it so much that you're like, hey, I'm going to get this tattooed on my ankle. Yeah, so it's, it's been a few years now. Um, I remember like when I started, to be honest, uh, like I've seen a friend of mine using it and it looked so cool and he was like super fast with it. So... At the beginning, it was more like uh, I was more impressed than, you know, I actually, it was not as if I made a, an informed decision. I was just like impressed, like by how things were happening. So I remember we were like sitting next to each other on, on, on college and, you know, he was using Vim and I was like, hey, like, what are you doing? How, how do you do things so fast? And then he showed me his dot files and, you know, he explained like me. Um, like he, he explained how the, the whole Vim code works, you know? Um, and yeah, so then I just, I just started, you know, trying out uh, all my free time because like, uh, at the time I was doing an internship. Um, and I, like, if I had used Vim, like on during work and stuff, um, I think I wouldn't have been productive enough, but after I think a month, I just, I just persisted, you know, like yeah. I just. I just yeah. kept trying, and in the beginning, I gotta say, it was very frustrating. But after a month, I was just so much faster, and you know, my workflow got so much more comfortable that I just, I just couldn't, couldn't quit. And now, like, now that I have, you know, that now that I started using like um, CLI tools uh, more often, I just like all I, all I know how to do, you know, like all, all my workflow. Uh, revolves around you know uh, CLI tools. Um, I mean, I tried I tried some some you know IDEs and stuff. It just it's not the same thing. Even with with Vim mode, I don't know. It's just it's just, it's just not not the same thing. Yeah. Where were you coming from in terms of a GUI or an IDE? 
when I started out in uh, in college, we were using Eclipse. So I remember like that that was all right at the time, but one of the things I struggled the most, and I, I even talk about this in the post, is that uh, especially for people that are starting out, I think it's hard to figure out what's the limit of the IDE, you know, like where does the IDE stop and where does the, the language toolchain start, you know? So I think it gets like a bit confusing for, for people, especially people that are new, like what are the things that are related to their development, development environment and what are the things related to the toolchain they're using, you know? Um, so that I think made, made things harder to understand. So once I moved to Vim and I just like started using my terminal like all the time, I feel like I know what my machine is doing. You know, it's not as if I was handling that to, to an ID. You know, so I'm not just pressing buttons and, you know, expecting things to happen and not really knowing what's going on in the background. Uh, it's like I, I feel like I'm in full control. And if anything goes wrong, I know what the like what what the CLI is telling me, you know, like what, what CLI two is telling me, what the terminal is telling me, because you get used to the terminology, you get used to like uh, how things fail instead of just like cryptic error messages or you know like just uh, pop ups or error, errors being hidden or anything like that. So it seems like there when you when you think about am I going to use the terminal or really the, if I'm going to base my workflow around the keyboard or around a mouse. Uh, the arguments around the keyboard and a terminal versus uh, GUIs, which usually require uh, a mouse or another you know, input device beyond just a term or beyond just a keyboard. The the factors are speed, somewhat somewhat context switching, but I think it's speed of like moving your hand off or on the keyboard to the mouse, which is slower. Um, once you're there, then it's fast, but that transition back and forth slows you down. And then also the idea of customizability or malleability. I think a lot of the modern text editors are catching up in the malleability uh, category. If you look at just the way you can trick out VS Code or Sublime Text uh, to the hilt at this point, and so many things are built in, or not built in, but available to be added, removed, and customized. Um, but if you had to think about what was the most important thing, I, you, you seem to be focusing a little bit on the speed because you say you feel like you're a little bit closer to the metal, so to speak. Maybe there's an analogy with you know driving a car, yeah. enthusiasts like like a manual transmission, uh, regular people like an automatic transmission. Is the speed really key for you? I don't think actually the speed is the key for me. Uh, I think, of course, it's more comfortable to use uh, a keyboard all the time. But... Actually, most of the time, I, th I don't think we're writing code, right? I think most of the time we're just like reading, we're, just, we're thinking. Uh, and I, what, I, what I really feel um, that makes a huge difference for me is that I don't feel like there's anything on my way when I'm transposing thoughts to code. You know, just it's so much faster and it's so automatic now. Uh, also, I can switch between like environments like often uh, when I pair with uh, coworkers. I can just, you know, like open a terminal window, spin up in, and I'm fine without plugins, without anything. Um, so I'm like good to go everywhere. I don't need to install anything. Uh, also, like even if I need to, configurations are a lot more portable. I think there are many more advantages rather than just being fast. I mean, being fast is cool, right? I mean, when you when I, when I'm when I'm doing a talk uh, and I'm doing live coding, you know, if I open Vim. I know that the subject of the questions are going to be about them, uh, like at, at least 50% of them, right. uh, and the other 50% about live coding. Um, 
yeah, it's just like it's fun, but I don't think it's the main the main reason why I use them. It's probably what got me started, but not what uh, keeps me going. You know, it seems like the limitations of, as you've said in your post too, the limitations of a GUI being bloatware for one, or just containing features that you don't really need. You in particular, maybe even all users at large, for the most part, this is a you know getting past that and and sort of back to the analogy of having access to bare metal uh, makes a lot of sense. But uh, one thing you mentioned was how you persisted through learning Vim, which is for me, that's been my hangup personally. Like I still use VS code. I'm a previous sublime text user. I uh, know many of the Vim commands and, you know, I'm an occasional coder, not an everyday coder. So I don't feel like I need to learn this today. And, you know, there's part of me that has regret, like, man, I really wish I would have persisted like you did, you know, on a side project or found some sort of way through because some, somehow, some, some way along the way, you know, as you said, you'd fall in love with the Vim way of things versus a GUI way and you couldn't go back. Can you talk about that persistence and maybe some of the things you did to persist? What were the things that made you get over these learning hurdles of Vim? I think that like uh, the the learning curve uh, is e.g. it's cheap, uh, but I think when when you use a tool for for a while, like you use uh, an IDE or whatever your text editor is, um, I think the more you use it, um, like the faster your own smaller tasks start matter uh, um, starts to matter more. So I think like the learning curve is indeed worth it. Because, uh, like, if you use uh, an ID for a long time, you know, like, even though you learn some commands, like, you're not forced to, you know, learn key bindings, to learn uh, shortcuts or anything. You just, like, keep clicking around, and many other programs, they don't even, like, give you that, like, um, that great quantity of, of key bindings. So, I think that, uh, like, for, 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 for what uh, us engineers do, um, I think it's a lot easier to use uh, CLI because since you repeat uh, tasks a lot, you know, it's, it's a lot easier for you to memorize a few words and just, you know, be accurate when communicating to the machine than, than actually keep uh, searching for buttons or, or anything like that. But my experience learning it was, was indeed very, very frustrating in the beginning, uh, especially because I was, I was using many plugins. Uh, I don't think I started it right. I think it's just like pleasurable, you know, it's, it's something I still enjoy, just sitting down and like configuring things, you know, like going through, like seeing what other people are using and like seeing if I can do something faster. Because I'm the kind of person that gets uh, easily annoyed by tasks that I have to perform too, like, too often. I, I'd say I strive to be lazy. That's a, that's a phrase I've heard once, and I think it's it's what motivates me to, you know, keep... Uh, Keep going. Uh, keep using them because uh, I, if I have to do something more than once, or if something feels boring, I'll just like try to automate it or try to find an easier way of doing it. And I think that's a great attitude to have when you're learning them. You know, just strive to be lazy and try to find easier ways of doing things. I think that's the the key idea. I'm over here. I'm in a little bit of a different situation because I might be the only person who's pers- persevered. Not the only, but a rare person who's persevered through learning Vim and still doesn't like it that, that much. Like, <laughs> Careful. I've, yeah. 
I don't dislike it. Let me let me tell. So a little, I feel like I've shared this before, but I'll share it again just for the conversation. So my introduction to Vim was by necessity. My teacher in college teaching me C++. You know, he basically was a Vim diehard. And he said, you're going to use, you know, you're going to SSH into this Unix machine and you're going to use Vim. And that's what you're going to do. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So that's what you're going to do to write your C++ programs. Therefore, I didn't really have a choice. I think if I had a choice, in fact, he let us use, it was either Pico or Nano. I think it was actually Pico. Uh, for the first like two programs and then he's like by the way pico is he specifically said a text editor in which you should write letters to your grandma but not write <laughs> computer programs so he was very very opinionated wow and uh, made us laugh quite a bit um but he's like don't use pico to write programs i just let you do that now you're gonna write vim and so i learned vim basically by necessity over that semester and i didn't really know there was this is back in like the early 2000s i didn't even know there was a different world of GUIs and IDEs or any of these things. I just learned, I cut my teeth on Vim. And so I'm very proficient with the editor. That being said, on a daily basis, and I, I write software on a daily basis, and I rarely choose Vim as my primary editor. I'll, I'll use it on servers. I will use it as a secondary editor. But I almost always prefer and choose a graphical interface. Specifically, I use Sublime Text, but I feel very similar about VS Code. Um, I actually feel like they're faster in many cases, uh, for me. And I think it's, it's problematic. I think we, we should be careful not to conflate the idea of a graphical interface with bloatware. Um, maybe because if, if we say there's GUIs and there's IDEs, yes, an IDE is a graphical interface, but not all graphical interface is an IDE, right? An IDE is an, is an environment. It's like an all-in-one, mm-hmm. similar to like a framework versus a library, right? It's like a framework. And yeah, yeah true. I think the, those are those are you know Visual Studio, uh, e- maybe Eclipse. These are things I don't have much experience with, but you know uh, Xcode I have some experience with. When you click the button to start it, and you got to wait thirty seconds for it to launch because it's bloated, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but Visual Studio Code, VS Code, Sublime Text, Atom, TextMate, um, Notepad plus plus. I don't know what's on the Windows side. These are <laughs> things that to me they feel lean and mean. They don't feel like bloatware. They feel like fast, small, lean programs that I can extend. And in my current life, by the time I get Vim configured to do all the things that I want out of a text editor, it's slower than, in my case, Sublime Text for many tasks. I think it's what you said there too on the IDE front is pretty important too. The don't confuse VS Code or Sublime Text in particular, those two, because those are the ones I'm most familiar with is like you are with say, you know, Eclipse, which is meant to be an integrated thing into the language. It's almost something you said too, Lucas, where you said that that you're not really sure where the IDE ends and the language begins, you know, that you you sort of have have this missing piece. But IDE, just to spell it out for the listeners that may not be aware, is it's, it's an acronym, obviously, for Integrated Development Environment. So that just means that you're taking this environment, this GUI, and integrating it into a particular platform. It could be, you know, a framework. It could be a language in particular. There's ones around Ruby. There's ones around Java. There's one that runs around Go and many of them. And they're for good reasons because there's certain special or magic or sugar in a language or in a framework that you want to extend to a GUI to sort of, you know, speed certain actions up that you repeat a lot. The same that you might do with a plugin or, you know, an alias or something like that. So... That's where this really comes in. I think your point, though, Jared, to not confuse the two is very important. 
Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. Uh, I just um, I mean, I I I think even like VS Code is like a, a great application, Sublime as well. I really don't like IDEs, uh, but like I think um, there's still some disadvantages. Of course, everyone has their preferences. Like for me, what motivates you know like um, what motivates me to keep in them is that um, I think I would say that when you're using like command line interfaces, you know, you can just like things already written for you, you know, just like prog- it's easy to communicate uh, like between programs, you know, because like uh, as uh, Douglas Macro has said, like um, if you write programs that, you know, work well together and if you use the universal interface, which are just like text streams, uh, I think it's just so easy to incorporate new things into your flow. Like things get so much more flexible. And I think you avoid writing software because, um, you know, if you like, the, I, I feel like there's also like lots of, you know, um, duplication because if you, if you already have, um, tools available for you to do one thing, you know, just, you know, if you can use streams, uh, and you can combine multiple programs, then I think many times you would avoid writing, avoid writing a plugin. Uh, also that's, that's how I feel about Vim now. Like I, I don't try to make Vim, uh, an ID, uh, as I, as I tried in the beginning, you know, I just try to go with the, the raw thing and try to, uh, you know, use the terminal the way it is supposed to be used, I guess. Uh, but of course, like I think, uh, VS Code is, is like, is great. I've seen lots of people using it already. And, you know, just, um, I think that's, that's a very important distinction you made there. I just think that there's still, um, do some advantages to using the terminal. And don't get me wrong, I'm a terminal junkie. I'm just speaking specifically of having your primary editor in the terminal. That's pretty much the yeah. only thing that I don't do in the terminal. Everything else is. And so I agree with all of the things that you're saying there. And I've found that Vim fits well in that workflow. So I'll use it as my, you know, dollar sign editor in my environment variables so that when I'm going to, you know, do a git commit, it will open it in Vim. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not completely on the other side of the fence here. I'm just a person who, when it comes time to like day-to-day like writing software, I do enjoy both the speed and uh, there's an aesthetic value to a graphical interface that uh, draws me over Vim. This episode is brought to you by Clubhouse. One of the biggest problems software teams face is having clear expectations set in an environment where everyone can come together to focus on what matters most, and that's creating software and products their customers love. The problem is that software out there trying to solve this problem is either too simple and doesn't provide enough structure, or it's too complex and becomes very overwhelming. Clubhouse solves all these problems. It's the first project management platform for software teams that brings everyone together. It's designed from the ground up to be developer first product in its DNA, but also simple and intuitive enough that all teams can enjoy using it. With a fast, intuitive interface, a simple API, and a robust set of integrations, Clubhouse seamlessly integrates with the tools you use every day and gets out of your way. Learn more and get started at clubhouse.io slash changelog. Our listeners get a bonus two free months after your trial ends. Once again, clubhouse.io slash changelog. Mm-hmm.
So we've been talking about bloatware and I'm trying to define some lines because I think there's some GUIs that are and some that aren't. Lucas, you, you start off your post saying GUIs are bloatware and you said it before. So this is something you got your thoughts and reasons about. Expand on that for us and why exactly this is a talking point for you. Yeah, so uh, I think, uh, I think uh, as we were chatting, like, I think it's important to make this distinction uh, between like uh, GYs in general and IDEs. Uh, of course, I don't like. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not a big fan of GYs in general. Um, I think they're just not optimal for what we do. I'm not saying like uh, that GYs are bad, that like, are inherently bad or anything. I'm just saying that like due to the nature of the tasks we do, um, which which involves a lot of repetition, uh, which might involve a lot of need to automate things, a lot of need to you know um, integrate programs, you know, combine programs. I think when you use uh, CLI tools, I think you're a lot, a lot more flexible when it comes to that. You know, it's a lot easier to combine programs, you know, using streams. You can use like, you know, uh, many tools to automate what you're doing. It's a, a lot easier to create scripts. Uh, it's a lot easier to extend programs. You know, you don't have to write a plugin. It's just uh, many things are available right out of the box because, you know, uh, people have written, you know, great uh Unix tools, you know, just uh, everything's very uh, readily available. And I think also the, um, since well, since we, we use those tools a lot with a lot of frequency, I think it's a lot easier for you to develop the, the to, to memorize commands and, you know, just type them out when you need, uh, like, and, and just type them out than it is to you know, be searching around for buttons or, you know, trying to um, remember like a specific sequence of things you need to do whilst uh, you could have automated all that. Um, so, yeah, I think there are, there are, of course, advantages to using uh, GUIs, but I just think that due to the nature of the things we do, I think it's it's more productive to use um, CLI tools. Also, like all the, all the information they provide you, you know, all the, it's a lot more, I think when it comes to how you communicate with the machine, it's also a lot more exact, it's a lot more precise. So I think it's kind of like as if you were talking with the machine in its own language. So it's easier for you to understand what it says and it's easy for you to tell it in a precise way what you want it to do. Uh -huh. Another point that you make in your post, which I appreciate and agree with, is that when you, when you invest learning time, because that's really what you're doing when you're learning is you're investing right in future you mm -hmm. and when you're investing in in command line and terminal unix based right posix compliant unix philosophy tools these are portable skills that can be moved to a new environment a new language a new the next thing that you're doing it could be on a different machine altogether you know you can ssh to any linux box in the world and it's going to have vim it's going to have, and we'll probably have Pico on there too, if you, <laughs> if you don't want them. Uh, it's going to have LS, right? It's going to have tree or will it have tree? Maybe it'll have tree. Point is, these things are portable. Whereas on the other side, if you're using an IDE or a, a graphical interface that is a larger, you know, kind of a monolithic program, you're really investing in one thing, right? You're not in stocks and bonds. We call this, you know, not, your portfolio isn't diversified. And so you, you can't take that, those IDE skills, move them elsewhere and, they, and use them. And so I think that's a really big talking point and a reason to invest in the CLI. You're also assuming, too, that the visual goes with you. Like you'd mentioned in college, Jared, that, and we do this every day, SSH into a machine. And 
you know, I'm on DigitalOcean Box or Linode or whatever. I don't, uh, you know, there's not actually a monitor there. You know, there's not some sort of visual. The visual is the terminal. So when you invest uh-huh. in VS Code or uh, a GUI in those cases, then you really can't take that with you from a visual standpoint either, let alone just an installation option. Like even if you could install VS Code on the machine, you can't see its interface via SSH, for example. True. Now you can get fancy and mount a drive, like an SSH mount, and use your local VS Code against a remote machine or something like that. But point, yeah, point taken. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I don't uh, I don't add too many things to my Vim configuration. You know, I try to use it as vanilla as possible. It's kind of like this disciplined pursuit for less, so that I can you know um, be uh, comfortable in any environment. You know, sometimes like when I'm I'm pairing with a coworker or anything, like many times I'll just fire up Vim and just use it like without its syntax or highlight or anything, because you know just I just feel comfortable that way, and it's a lot easier for me to you know write code anywhere mm-hmm. on any device. It's it's really good, yeah. Would you consider yourself a minimalist or somebody that that strives for minimalism? Considering you said this discipline pursuit of less, I think the like the more the more I do software, the 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 more I strive for less. I think uh, I think um, yeah. I think I actually like the, the I think less 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 software. The yeah, sorry, I got got a bit lost. Yeah. <laughs> So you agree with uh, minimalism then, long story short. <laughs> yeah. I like what you say, too, in, in this post, too, around your advice, basically, you know, to, to for beginners, at least, is to resist this urge to just use all the plugins possible out there and to sort of, like, learn it incrementally and then layer on plugins that may be useful to you, you know, as you sort of gain more and more proficiency. Was that when I asked you earlier in segment one, you know, what some of your tactics were to getting past the hurdle. It seems like maybe originally you tried all the plugins and then at some point you gained some wisdom and you said, well, maybe, maybe actually if you're learning Vim for the first time to get over this hurdle, don't try to use all the plugins possible to, to actually achieve this minimalism we're camping out on here. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, um, I think there are some plugins that are quite useful when you're starting out, like Nurtree or, you know, like Contropy or FZF, which is what I use now, you know, just being able to fuzzy find files and, you know, seeing a file tree. I think people are so used to that in, you know, every single um, text editor or, you know, IDE they use that. That's such a, it's such a, an ubiquitous feature. feature. Um, I think those, those are quite useful. But many things, I think they can just be done in vanilla, and I think it's just easier and more portable if you just just do vanilla. Let's expand from the Vim conversation and talk about uh, some of the other tools that you're using. So in this post, you have the Terminal Starter Pack, and it includes Vim or NeoVim in your case, Tmux, iTerm2, and ZSH, and oh my ZSH. And when I read these four things together, I think it's a, a very nice starter pack. I would say that on the Zen minimalism side, if I could say the word, um, and on what's, what's stock on computers that you're going to be using elsewhere, I would actually argue that I'm, I'm beating you in this category because iTerm2 isn't on machines by default. ZSH sure isn't on a lot of machines by default, whereas Bash yeah, would be. Um, that being said, Tmux isn't, and I'm a, I'm a rabid Tmux user. So just curious why this is your starter pack and... Maybe give us the reason why you pick uh, each of these tools and why you like them. Yeah, so um, I think NeoVim was as a as a natural evolution for um, when you when you use a meme. I think it's just like you you end up getting annoyed by the 
the synchronous task and uh, and I think it's just like a natural move since configurations are compatible and everything. Um, I think that also once you've used uh, a couple terminal emulators like um, item two or uh, Terminator or whatever you use, I think you just you just like it's a natural evolution to go to to Tmux. I think um, mm-hmm. also uh, it's very configurable all the plugins and everything. Also being able to attach and detach sessions. Um, I think Tmux is you know, it just integrates really nice with everything else that's on the terminal. Um, I think, as as you've said, like, item 2 is not available everywhere. That's true. Um, but to be honest, when I started using it, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really um, very proficient with, the, with terminals. Uh, so I just started using item 2. I quite liked it. I used to, you know, replace lots of Gmox features, you know, splitting, pa- uh, splitting right. panes and, you know, opening tabs. And then I think what got me was like the, you know, how easy it was to configure all the, the how easy it was to import color schemes and all that. Um, and I think it's just like, uh, you know, it's just inertia. So I'll challenge you a little bit on that one because I am a former iTerm2 user and uh, currently terminal.app. I think I accidentally talked Adam into just using mm-hmm. the stock terminal on sure the Mac. Sure did. Mostly because of how much previously I, I learned GNU Screen, so I switched to Tmux probably five years ago. But I was a Screen user, which gives a very similar feature set to Tmux, just a little bit less uh, usable and modern, I should say. Um, I found over time that iTerm2 wasn't actually providing any features that I needed because I do so much with Tmux, and so Terminal App you can you know you can change the font, you can change the theme, and I don't really use tabs, and so everything's in Tmux with sessions, and I like Tmuxinator. I think I recently wrote about that on uh, changelog.com if you want to read that. So curious if iTerm2 has any like killer features that you're still using it, or you're just kind of using it because that's what you learn, and that's what you like, and you haven't had any reason to stop. Yeah, to be honest, I think iTerm2 is like, uh, it's, more of, uh, it's more because of inertia, I'd say, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's just what I, I'm used to and I find it like so easy to configure like the phones, the color scheme and all that. I'm just so used to it and you know, it's just, I think from all the things in the stacks, the thing I interact with the most, uh, I think I replaced like all the all the features I used to use from it from uh, by Tmux. Uh-huh. So yeah, I think I think Tmux just makes my, my workflow so much more organized, you know, if I'm you know, if I'm writing code and, you know, something urgent happens and I need to, you know, jump in, like, to do support or anything, I'll just, you know, detach a session, create a new session, or, you know, just uh, move to a new tab and, you know, just do it very fast. They don't have to, to t- think too much about it. So I think Gmux ended up replacing all the all those features for me, and I just I just use it more of inertia, I'd say. So would you say that iTerm2 is questionable then for you, that Terminal would do most of it? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty questionable. I'd say it's more because, you know, it's just... <laughs> From the minimalism perspective, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, yeah. it's a great application. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe you just talked me out of, uh, talked me out of it. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just uninstall it now, maybe. Uh, yeah, no, just... Uh, I don't know, like, actually... Yeah, that's 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 a very good point. I, I use it more... What brought this up for Jared and I was... And this is about two years ago when I say, Jared, you got a new MacBook Pro. Yeah. And, you know, the... What hacker can resist the question of so what are you installing on this new machine? You know, right. and that's the that's the age old you know great great conversation to have. So he was talking through certain things. Says you know what I'm actually going to just use terminal instead of I'm trying to resist. He said I believe if I'm quoting right. you from before 
I'm resisting installing iTerm 2 uh, because... Just to see if I, I can get by without it. Right. You know? Because Terminal's already here. Why not just try to use this? And for these reasons, uh, you know, he's already using Tmux and whatnot. And so the next time I got a machine, I recalled that conversation. And I'm a fan of, of minimalism. I achieve and aspire to have less. Uh, doesn't mean I always am a minimalistic person. That is my natural state uh, of being, though. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to follow in Jared's footsteps and just resist iTerm2 and use Terminal. And I haven't looked back since. Uh, that's years now. However, and to be fair to, be fair to iTerm2, the, the built-in Terminal app has gotten a lot better in recent years. There was a time where there was a huge disparity between what iTerm2 provided and what the built-in app provided. It was way better mm-hmm. in multiple ways. Most people use it because of the split panes, but like we said, if you if you have Tmux and you're familiar with that, it, it solves that problem for you. And so I think I think it, there used to be a bigger difference, and I think at this point, you know, it's it's less so. But that being said, if I go through and look at all of iTerm 2's features, I can probably find I can probably find reasons why I'd want to use this, right? I can probably find reasons to install it. But my new philosophy is instead of asking why shouldn't I install something, like ask why do I need to, and if I don't need to, don't do it. That's kind of a minimalism perspective, I believe. And how far can I get on just what's already available to me? Mm-hmm. Um, which, when it comes to the command line and you know Unix-based tools, you can live your life without installing very much. Um, that being said, uh, Lucas, I'm curious if you've ever heard of Tmuxinator or ever tried it. Since you're a Tmux fan, is that something you're familiar with? Or um, no, no, never, no, I haven't heard of it actually. Tmuxinator. Yeah, yeah, yeah I haven't, I haven't it's, heard it's, of it. It's pretty cool. So if you have a lot of ongoing projects, uh, which a uh, person who does client work, as well as like coding stuff for change.com, I have a lot of little projects going. And uh, it's common to have different, you know, Tmux sessions for each of those projects and hop and forth. You need to ha- detach one, attach another one, and it's all set up and ready to go, right? Well, Tmux Simulator, unfortunately, it's a Ruby gem, so it has a Ruby dependency upon it. I love it to be, it's like written in Bash or something. But it's basically a way that you can... Uh, create your own configurations for tmux name them and then define like all the panes and what each command will get run in each pane and you just store them in yaml files in your home directory and then you can just say you know tmux changelog and it'll just start that whole session for me and save it for me from scratch and i can have one of those for each you know particular thing i'm doing it's really pretty cool and anybody who uses tmux i would suggest at least checking it out because it's a good idea and I, I think it, it kind of like fits really well with what I usually do because like I have I have kind of these implicit rules for myself. Like usually, you know, when I'm working on this certain project, like this first this first pane will always do this thing. You know, the exactly. second time is always going to be for that thing. So it's usually like, oh, my first, you know, my first tab runs things and, you know, just, you know, keeps a window open for if I, in case I, I need to, you know, move files around or anything. And, you know, the second one is always like Vim uh, and, you know, running some tests or anything like that. And I can like have these rules for myself. So yeah, if that automates that, I think it fits really nice with like uh, with my, what most people do actually. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So for changelog.com, for instance, like the first pane is the server running, and then the second one is a console session open to the you know with the the whole framework loaded and everything. The third one's the tests running, and then the fourth one is just a shell. And so I don't have to. I can name them. I don't have to set them up every single time because you do find yourself doing the exact same thing. What would be cool is if you could just have Tmux sessions last persist through reboots, which I feel like maybe there's some hacks out there that make that work, but it was never really reliable for me. So those those detached sessions will persist, 
and live forever until you reboot your machine. Um, and so this is a nice way of just, you know, configuring it once per project and not having to worry about it. Well, most of the, the procrastination that could happen or would happen would because of all the necessary cadence or ceremony to begin. Right. Like that's, right. that's some of the reason why people put off a task is like all the necessary steps you have to do to actually begin the task, not just actually achieve the goal. So in this case, if you want to work on a quick bug or just anything really fastly, you know, then if you had to do that ceremony every single time, you'd be more, you'd be less likely to, to even get started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or you just find yourself typing the same crap out all the time. I mean, like as programmers, every time we type the same thing over and over and over again, right. like our brains start thinking, how can I not do this every single time? Right. You know, and that's a lot of yeah. the stuff Lucas has done, you know, what you're sharing here in your setup is really just you solving those problems. And, um, it's one of those things, I think, the mindset of a terminal slash uh, in-terminal editor user versus a IDE user is an IDE user generally is like, just do all the things for me, give me a button, and I just want to push it. I think that's a perfectly viable way of looking at it. But on the other side, it's kind of just the more hacker lifestyle of, no, I'm going to actually, I'm going to create my own environment that's ideal and perfected. And I can smooth over all the little mm -hmm. issues. You know, one thing that I've done years ago, and I don't even realize it anymore. I think about it now because we're talking about this is I just started realizing like in the command line, every time you change directories into a new folder, what's the first thing you do pretty much? Like what's the next command? Um, yeah, LS, right? I mean, LS. Yeah. Like I'm in a new directory, you know, it's similar to like uh, when you're like a text-based adventure and you're like, I enter a room and now you're like, okay. Tell me what's in the room. You know, I look yeah. around the room. Yeah, role perception. Yeah, CD and then LS pretty much every time. And even if you didn't want to LS, would it bother you if you did? So probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I just overwrote the CD command in my bash dot files to just LS after I CD every single time for me. And so now that's just the way it works. I change directory, it prints it out. And that's just the cool stuff that you can do. And maybe I'm the only person in the world that likes that. That's fine. I'm the only person in the world that has it then. The cool thing is, is we've kind of gotten to this sort of blacksmith kind of mentality of, say, ages of old, whenever, you know, the blacksmith in the town was the one of the most popular persons because they would be the tool maker. Mm -hmm. And this was just an age where it was common in a practice or a craft to form and create and manipulate your own tooling. And I think that that's that's kind of maybe even potentially a divide of hacker type where not so much that, that uh, you have to fully adopt this, but that you can appreciate your ability to fine tune your tooling. Like when you mentioned the IDE, Jared, having the button, that's a perfectly viable option. However, mm -hmm. you know, the hacker way tends to be, you know what? I like the button, but I wanted to do this, this, and this as well. So a GUI may not be the better fit because you're the kind of person or, the person is the kind of person using these tools to want to make and fine tune their own tooling to adapt and be the best practitioner. Uh -huh. Yeah. There's a lot of pleasure also. Like when you, when you do something yourself, you know, like, you know, exactly like how it works, you know, uh, you know what, what you need to do in case you need to do any fixes, you need like, you know, exactly what's happening. Uh, and I think it's also like very pleasing, as you said, you know, it's just. There's absolutely a satisfaction to solving your own little problems. And just being, yeah. it, it feels empowering to just say, you know what, I had this 
this bothered me. It was the smallest little thing. Mm-hmm. And I came up with a reason. Like I came up with the idea of why would I just change it? So when every time I see the LSs, and from the, the point that I had that idea to the point that I had it finished, like I had to realize that you, if you override a built-in command when you're in your function, you have to call the built-in, like literally the word built-in CD. Um, that was like the only part I had to figure out. But from the idea to initiate, or what's it called, finish, right? I did, start to finish is probably like 15 minutes. And it's been serving me like that for 10 years of my life. Yeah, it's, so that, 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 that feels really good, right? Those 15 minutes was well spent to invest in the future self. Which I think you, was one of the main points, Lucas, you were driving home earlier. Yeah, exactly. Something else you mentioned too, though, Jerry, was, was bash and configuring it and hacking it. So the last piece on the terminal starter pack is, is ZSH. And maybe the extension of that is Rob Russell's, Robbie Russell's Oh My ZSH, which I'm a, a fan of personally, but you use a bash or you, you're using bash, Jared. So we, we're right. like two to one here. Oh, you got me cornered. <laughs> well, L- Lucas, help us understand why is ZSH something you reach for since you're a minimalist and Bash, as Jared said before, is on every machine. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, I, I when I started out, uh, I was using I was I was using Bash, um, and then I think the the thing that drew me to to ZSH was the auto completion. I think that was like the the clear thing for me, the clear feature. Uh, I think that what's brought me in. Uh, also. Um, all the 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 glob patterns and all that, um, and I think just like managing configuration with uh, oh my gosh is just like so easy. Also, uh, Zed, it's just um, yeah, that's that was kind of like a, I think I think that, but I think the killer feature was was for me the the auto completion and just like you can just you know get all the conditions for everything you use and just yeah. But here I'm about to say you know what if there was oh my bash I might. Uh, because what actually draws me to ZSH is less about ZSH and and more just the fact that oh my ZSH existed and it made it so easy and I like the so, easy button. There actually is an oh my bash. Yeah, that's hilarious. So yeah, for us uh, laymen over here, tell everybody what oh my ZSH is. Well, I'll just read the the uh, description on the repo. A delightful community driven. With over thirteen hundred contributors, framework for managing your ZSH configuration. So it's it's really about oh my ZSH is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie made this configuration for it. You know that was that's what oh my ZSH is now to sort of make plugins and this, this extension to use Rails, Git, and have all this configuration a lot easier. And that's what oh my ZSH is is this extension, this layering on top of ZSH to make it make your terminal prettier and things like that, and just you know change and augment the visualization of your uh, your command prompt that episode was a long time ago back in 2011 we'll put that one in the show notes go back and listen to that the old adam stack you know that's right and, and kenneth reitz interviewing Russell. that's right see how that's they had that audio sounded back then so that's what oh my zsh zsh is so adam you got brought to zsh because oh my zsh was so cool right and lucas you got brought to it because auto completion was better than bash I'm not sure if that's still the case. I mean, Bash has auto-completion. Maybe it's just not as good as ZSH's. Um, but I'll probably just stick with Bash. Yeah, I think indeed, uh, oh my gosh, makes it uh, a lot easier to get started with it. And, you know, the community is just so huge. It's just like so, so easy to like find ways of solving your problems, you know, find help and documentation and everything you need. Um, so yeah, I think, I think oh my gosh did um, like really 
fostered a lot of, like made made, uh, made a lot easier for people to start using ZSH. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. Resolve your errors and minutes into public confidence. Catch your errors in your software before your users do. And if you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they want to give you $100 to donate to open source via Open Collective. And all you got to do is go to rollbar.com slash changelog, sign up, integrate Rollbar into your app. And once you do that, they'll give you $100 to donate to open source. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. So you talked about the, the four pillars, you might say, of your setup, NeoVim, Tmux, iTerm2, and ZSH by way of, oh my ZSH, of course, the command line and the terminal is way more than that. And the, the more of the commands that you know and learn and ingrain into your workflow, the better you are at it. Now, one of the hard parts about the terminal, similar to like an Alexa device, is discoverability isn't the best, right? It's, it's difficult to ask the computer, what are all the things that I could, you can do? Because well, there aren't buttons to click on, which tell you what they do. So uh, one of the things you have here at the end is other useful programs and things to know in order to uh, to get good at the terminal and you know use it instead of the GUI. So why don't you go ahead and we can talk about a few of these. There's a lot of beloved favorites in there. Curl, of course, uh, at the top of the list. Uh, beloved, Much beloved around here. Daniel Stenberg, uh, kind of a hero of ours and a frequent guest on the show for Curl and all he's done done there. but uh, I'll tee it over to you, Lucas, to talk about some of these other commands that you found useful and you integrate into uh, your terminal life. Yeah, I think I think these are the ones that you know um, make it easier for you to do everything you would do in a in a in a GUI. I think those, those are the the things that people do the most. So I think it was was useful to put them down here so that people know, hey, these are the things I can use to you know replace whatever I'm doing right now, uh, and maybe you know do it more efficiently and in a more flexible manner. So I think like JQ is really really cool, especially because like uh, you know if you're using curl, you're you're probably going to get JSON back, and you want to to work with it in a nice way, you know, in a simple way. Uh, also, uh, string master SCG. Uh, I don't know how you how you guys call it, like SED SCG. That's what I call it, SED. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I quite I quite like SED. Also, since um, since I already, you know, use them quite frequently, um, I got very familiar with like regular expressions, and uh, I very rarely, uh, you know, need to uh, Google like a regular expression because you know most of the things I do also are like simple regular expressions. Uh, AG uh, is very use uh, very useful, especially when navigating, um, you know, uh, true code when trying to find something. I actually use it. Um, True uh, FZF on Vim, so actually my FZF uh, plugin uses AG, uh, and it's really easy to configure. I can just like um, use configuration to ignore uh, whatever is on my Git ignore, so I don't get all those annoying node modules when I'm searching for things. So it makes it really easy to navigate around to find things. 
uh, AWK, it's uh, like I always have to go how like exactly what I need to do. Uh, Me too. It's, it's like you know, it's it's not very verbal, so I think it makes it harder for you to remember uh, remember things. Like unless it's something very basic. Uh, I mean, googling is required, but it's it's very useful. Um, or sync, or sync, or sync. You know, I I was seeing a talk these days. Uh, and a guy was saying that R-Sync is made of magic, and I couldn't agree more. R-Sync is indeed made of magic. Um, very useful for Why, why do you say that? It's just like, it's ridiculously fast, and it just works so well. It's re- ridiculously simply to use. It's just, you know, uh, just having an, an incremental file transfer that is so easy to use, just, it's just ridiculously magic. Uh, also, Grab. Grab is such a great tool. I was reading these days on how I can use a post about why Grab is so fast and it was just all these things have they have so much magic into them. It's not just our sync. I think our sync and Grab stand out, but I think both our sync and Grab are, are great tools. Also, Make. Uh, I think many people overlook Make. I think it's such a great tool for automating tasks. And you know, even though there's this 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 joke around of you know they're only having being one make file and all their make files are copies, uh, like a bit modified of this first make file. Um, I actually think make is like a great tool. I think um, it, it plays really well even with the, you know, NPM scripts and all that. Um, I think uh, sometimes, you know, things like uh, Google foreground are like quite you know, uh, annoying to configure maybe. So I say make, does many things really well and it's really simple to use has been around like uh, for a very long time um, so I mm-hmm. quite like it as well also so Lucas for more on make uh, stay tuned to an upcoming episode because Gerhard Lazu our our DevOps buddy uh, who just recently redid changel.com infrastructure for 2019's coming back on the show if you guys recall a while back we had him on maybe it was 2018 maybe it was 2017 I don't recall our first time deploying change.com uh, as the open source CMS that was with Ansible and Docker. Well, we've got a brand new setup and Ansible is completely gone. Docker's still there. Uh, you definitely want to find out what we're doing this time, but I will tell you, Gerhard is like a make file guru because all of our Ansible scripts have been replaced by one make file, which is open source in our repo if you don't want to go read it. And this thing has all sorts of interesting features. I never reach for make. Like I've, I, I use it when other people have, have, have written make files. I wouldn't reach for it myself, but it's awesome to see how much you can do uh, with a make file. So just a quick plug for that. And I agree, there's definitely a lot of tasks you can automate beyond just building and compiling code. What I love about this list is that it's, um, as you said, Jerry, with Alexa, which I think is actually a great analogy, is, is discoverability, right? The way that you discover you know, these kinds of things is by somebody else going down the path and doing a retrospective and sharing their learnings, right? Because you can assume imposter syndrome or, you know, you don't know as much as somebody else, but meanwhile, you're a few steps ahead of somebody else and you can always share back a little bit. And this list alone is going to be helpful for, you know, a future or up and coming programmer that is like, I, I never really knew or how to use make. And now, you know, now they've got this list to kind of go off of and some experience. Yeah, I think make, make is definitely definitely amazing. Um, like I, I even joke in, in one of my talks that you know um, we, we use make in lots of projects, and we even use make in Chai. It's not because you know we're 
we're vintage and we don't like, you know, gold grunt or income scripts or any of that, it's just because it works and vintage. it's been around for, for, for such a long time and, you know, it's just so well documented and so, so easy to find material about. It's just, it's just amazing. Yeah. Quite like me. Not modern, Jared. Vintage. I like that. Vintage. <laughs> Minimalist. Okay, I, I, there's a lot of things we can call make, but I don't think we can call it minimalist, right? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, vintage is a, is a word I like. I mean, uh, coming from someone that lives in East London, I think that's still the right word to use. Love it. I also give my plus one to, to most of these. I th- sync. I would be embarrassed to tell you how many things I'm still, you know, deploying or or backing up with rsync on different machines around the world. Uh, such a useful tool. So AG, yeah. uh, you, you talked about AG. You didn't pause there very much. Uh, this is a search tool similar to ACK. So there's this been this progression of search tools. Grep, which is built in on all Linuxes, most Unixes, um, is an awesome tool. ACK is a replacement for Grep. I remember Brett with a great website, betterthangrep.com. Uh, AG, AG is called the Silver Searcher. It's just like ACK, only it's focused on speed. I think it's written in posits compliant C code. So is this is this AG, the AG, the Silver Searcher, do you use this only inside of Vim by way of a plugin or is this also just, you just use it from the command line tool when you're just searching a code directory or for, do you use it in place of grep or do you also use grep in different contexts? You know, I also use grep. Uh, I use AG mo- mostly inside of FZF indeed, but I'll, I'll, I'll also use it when I'm navigating around sometimes, you know, uh, I'll use uh, Git Grab if I'm not in Vim because I want to ignore whatever's on, you know, Git Ignore and just like see what what I'm dealing with in Git. Um, uh-huh. But yeah. So when would be a time that you'd reach for Git Grab versus AG from the command line? Is it when you're searching for something specific? So or I just don't uh, understand why one would be used over the other. So you, you mean why why would I use AG instead of Git Grab or? Or vice versa from the command line. Like, why doesn't AG fulfill all your needs? Would be the question. So, if I were if I were to use AG, I would tell it to to ignore. Like, uh, well, actually, I don't have to to actually ignore my git ignore. Because, like, when I when I started yeah. using FZF, I had to manually tell it, "Hey, AG, ignore my git ignore." Um, so, mm-hmm. I I actually thought that I would have to always tell it to ignore my git ignore, but actually not. So, actually, I knew something wrong. I just realized. <laughs> Okay. I wasn't trying to call you out. I'm actually trying to learn because I, because I, I tend to use grep just because it's familiar to me. Now I also use ACK, but I usually only use ACK inside yeah. of like the Vim search tools. I feel like at a certain point with ACK, I used to have to tell it what kind of a file I was looking for, like ACK-Perl, for instance, or dash yeah. JS, if I just wanted to search JavaScript files, whereas grep will by default search every file in the directory. But I'm just yeah. going from memory there. I was just curious if AG had specific places where it fall down. Um, but maybe we should just all yeah. be using AG all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. I didn't know that. That's good to know. Yeah. Well, there's one common thread that binds all these tools together. We've talked about the Unix philosophy. We've talked about small tools, you know, loosely coupled, and the idea of you know sending your input and your output between these tools by piping. And really, what's at the core of that is this concept of everything's a file and really the idea of plain text or just passing text around and the beauty of that. You have another post called In Praise of Plain Text, which hilariously starts off how graphical <laughs> interfaces are bloatware. Uh, so we, we've, we've sensed a theme here with you, Lucas. Uh, but 
go ahead and just riff on that, the, the concept of plain text, why it's so powerful and why it's so useful in this context. So I think that, you know, just having this, this interface readily available for you to, you know, integrate into my program makes it so easy for you to achieve tests. Uh, and also, I think it kind of like encourages good design. Because, you know, when, you, when you're writing a program that needs to work uh, by itself, that cannot communicate, or that it's hard to communicate with other programs, you know, um, like when you're using a, a GUI, you know, it's, it's often hard to pass data from, from that GUI into other programs, whilst when, you, when you're using text interfaces, it gets quite, quite easy to do that. So since you, you don't have to worry about, you know, putting all those features into a graphical interface, you know, you focus, you know, that's, you know, that, that's a very important thing in Unix philosophy, you know, just doing one thing and doing it well. So I think programs get a lot smaller and, you know, when you have less software, you have less things to worry about, you have less things to maintain, less things to update. Uh, there's less places where bugs can hide. So I think it not only makes it easier for you to, you know, to accomplish tasks, but also encourages uh, good design in general. And I also think that uh, another thing that's, that's important here is that, uh, when you're using graphical interfaces, um, often the, the creators of graphical interfaces have to, you know, be thinking about, hey, what are our users going to do? You know, like, what, what should we provide them with? While mm -hmm. if you're, you know, writing a CLI tool, you should just be concerned about what I want this specific tool to do, you know, like, what's this, what's the, this, the smallest thing, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the real purpose of this tool? Because, you know, whatever whatever else they want to do with the output of that, or whatever they want to provide as input, you know, is none of your concern. So I think that's that's really useful when when developing application is both from the point of view of the creators, because for them it's it's a lot easier, um, because they have to assume less things, and from the point of view of, of the user, where it becomes a lot easier to use them in whatever way they think it's more more suitable, so they can accomplish a wider range of tasks, I guess. I like the way you end that post. Text is timeless, precise, and elegant. We should use it more. Yeah, I think I think that when, when you're communicating to a machine, you know, it's kind of like when you when you when you know like the language of mathematics, you know, it's just a lot more precise. Yeah, I think it's just it's just so so simple. Um, so I quite like the idea of you know not having you know visual abstractions or you know all these visual concepts or things that you have to have seen before to understand what they do, you know, like when you see a symbol, like that's that's a common idea between us humans, like that's a common agreement between us that, you know, oh, this symbol does this thing, you know, so if you're not, if, if you don't know what a certain symbol does or if it looks confusing in a certain way, you know, it's just, it's too subjective uh, whilst, you know, while text is just, it's just precise, you know, you tell the computer precisely mm. what, what you want it to do and there's no subjective in that. You know, there's no searching around for buttons or, you know, there's no looking for an icon or not understanding, you know, like not finding something, you know, it's just, it's always there. It's just exact and precise. And, you know, as I said, it's, it's timeless. Well, you aren't going to get any disagreements from me on that one. Huge fan of plain text. And a huge fan of Markdown, which has similar precepts and, and really mm -hmm. allows you to write, you know, prose, not engineering necessarily, unless you're doing documentation, but just the idea of, writing uh, prose to be read in a plain text format, a, at least a format that uh, is readable and legible and enjoyable in plain text, but then can be converted uh, into HTML or, or any other format for other needs, I think is the simplicity is probably one of the reasons why 
Markdown took off and became kind of a de facto language for technical writing. Are there any resources you can share that's something you track pretty often? Maybe a text mode only newsletter or something like that? Yeah, so uh, I, usually, I, I, I tend to go to a lot of conferences. So I talk a lot about people, uh, talk a lot to people about, you know, what are they using? Uh, and especially like since, you know, whenever I'm doing live coding or, you know, whenever I'm using my Mac, I'm in my terminal, like, uh, I'm quite approachable for people that also, uh, you know, use, you know, like CLI tools quite a lot. So uh, I think interacting with people is like a very, uh, very valuable, very valuable way of learning these things. Because, you know, sometimes you, you know, I think, as I've said, one of the, one of the motors for, one of the main motivations for wanting to, you know, use the, the terminal more is to get more efficient what you're doing. You know, when you get annoyed, you go there and you fix uh, and you try to find more efficient ways of doing things. Um, but sometimes you don't realize that you're missing a more efficient way of doing things because you think that what you're doing is already efficient enough, right? So I mm-hmm. think that's that's where, uh, that's when talking to people comes uh, and, you know, makes it a lot easier for you to realize what are the things that you could be improving, but you aren't because you think they're already good enough. Um, so you're missing improvements on those points. Uh, I also, uh, on GitHub, I'm always looking for people's dot .files to see what they're using. I think that's quite useful. I think I learned a lot by reading other people's dot .files. Um, so, yeah, just seeing what's in there, you know, like how they use things, how they use tools, you know, uh, asking myself why a certain piece of configuration is there. Um, I think that's also very useful. Um and also, like, you know, just, uh, I, I find quite a lot of useful stuff on how can you use, you know, uh, yeah, on, on Twitter. So I guess it's those are the ways I, I keep myself updated when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. I can say that I've learned some things, uh, a thing or two reading your dot files, Jared. Particularly because, yeah, because you, uh, do some interesting things with bash history or just your RC file. You know, just different things that have been in, in your settings I've learned. Even though I don't use Bash all the time, this is back when I did. Um, you know, I always appreciate looking at somebody else's dot files. And just because you'd mentioned that, Lucas, I was like, you know what? I wonder, since we're such a uh, an awesome repo kind of fan place, Jerry, where we pretty much anything that's awesome, you know, mm-hmm. awesome dot files, awesome Vim, awesome whatever, we're going to try and log it. Uh, I found awesome dot files, which actually I, was gonna is a, say, I guarantee there's an awesome dot files out there. Yeah, it's a curated list of dot file resources, so you can jump into a lot of different stuff. I think it's a great point, Lucas, to to find learning, which is what I was trying to get at. Was like, you know, you know, for those listening, where can they find some good resources to just learn themselves? You know, uh, a lot of it is paying it forward by writing a blog post about where you've been, like you have, in both of these scenarios, to sort of give representation and give a path forward for, you know, somebody coming behind you. And uh, I think the, you know, reading somebody's dot files is, is quite, quite enlightening sometimes. It's like, wow, I didn't even imagine doing that. Or that's really interesting. Like, I think you were doing something in particular with history, Jared, and I can't recall what, but that's the one thing that sticks out to me about your dot files is I was really, I think you had your history, like an extreme amount or something like that, like 30,000 oh, yeah. or something. As big as it would possibly yeah. go. Yeah. Because why wouldn't I want to have all that <laughs> Of stuff course. There? That's my, yeah. my same idea, but I was like, I didn't know I was able to. The alternative to that is have no history. That way no one can track your, your, your moves. That's right. You know? That's, That's right. the ninja. The ninja move erases their history as they go. Yes. But, but I'm the hoarder. I'm just like, well, I'm going to keep as many lines as, I think it's just set to the max available. Mm-hmm. 
because we have the we have the resources now. I think the history command was probably written back in the day when you know people were dealing with uh, size constraints on their disk, but no such problems. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder if so. I agree with dot files in terms of a way of learning tips and tricks from other people, but it's so much more useful if somebody actually just walked you through the dot files or explains why they do what they do versus just trying to, you know, conjure their intent or hope they have <laughs> comments on what they're doing. So I, I'd be curious if you guys, you too, but also the listeners, if you'd like to tweet at us or something or comment on this uh, episode on changelog.com, if you'd be interested in watching like kind of like a, maybe not a live stream, but a video where somebody would actually walk you through their dot files or explain some of the more interesting tidbits in a, in a screencast or even just a two people sitting there, one person asking questions, one person answering. Cause it seems like that's a more digestible format for me versus I'm not just going to go troll through other people's dot files anymore. Maybe back when I was in my early twenties, I would do that. But if somebody served it up to me, like here's a person who I respect and here's why they're doing their dot files the way they are. I think that might be interesting. Would is that interesting to either of you two? It's interesting to me. I think that's uh, the better way probably to do it. A good first pass would be accessible dot files. Second pass would be explainer, please. Yeah. And I think also just like seeing things in action uh, so that you can realize how that actually feeds into someone's workflow. You know, just, not just like exactly. seeing, seeing a tool there, you know, and knowing what it does, but not knowing how someone uses it. So I think that's, that's quite a useful, useful thing to know. Also, too, like what we did, this isn't exactly a one-to-one, but, you know, we've got Lucas questioning iTerm2, you know, just by looking through That's his right. choices, you know, so a just critical like, eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe this. Terminal actually is probably just fine. So, you know. That's, it's kind of like code review or working in a pair. When, like, you're all by yourself and you do things, you just do certain things. And then when you're with somebody and you have to explain, teaching does this to you as well. And someone's like, why do you do it that way? And you're mm-hmm. like... Why do I do it that way? Hmm, you know, yeah. why am I using iTerm2? I'm not sure. It made sense at the time. Maybe I don't need it anymore. So, yeah, that's, that's always an enlightening exper- experience for everybody. Well, it's been a fun conversation, Lucas. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing your thoughts in these two blog posts. I know that uh, you gave a talk at Nebraska.js, which, Jared, that's where you learned about Lucas from before. That's right. And then this, uh, this awesome blog post, how I'm still not using GUIs in 2019 which is a, a guide to using terminals. So for those listening out there, if you haven't read this, we'll link it up in the show notes, do a, do a deep read into this. Shares is not files. A lot of the stuff we talked through, obviously. All the links will be in the show notes. But uh, Lucas, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, I love the show. I'm really happy to be here. And it was like a really nice talk to you guys. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Changelog. Hey, guess what? We have discussions on every single episode now. So head to changelog.com to discuss this episode. And if you want to help us grow this show, reach more listeners, and influence more developers, do us a favor and give us a rating or review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you use Overcast, give us a star. If you tweet, tweet a link. If you make lists of your favorite podcasts, include us in it. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, Linode, Clubhouse, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, Rollbar, our monitoring service, and Linode, our cloud server of choice. 
This episode is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo, and our music is done by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com master, or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Thank you for tuning in this week. We'll see you again soon. Because you've stuck in here to the end of the show, got a surprise for you. Here's another preview of our upcoming show called Brain Science. This podcast is for the curious. We explore the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and the complexities of the human condition. It's hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and my good friend, Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's about brain science applied, not just how the brain works, but how we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives. Here we go. That applied brain science really stood out to me because I want, I don't want it to just be data. I I want you to go, how can this fit? What can I take away? Now, how am I going to change? And that that sort of is where you come in more and even some of the questions like, so like, I want to ask you, what are some of the most challenging things working in the tech world when it comes to relationships? Probably the most important one is isolation. More and more the world and companies are being, for good reasons, they're being okay with what they call distributed teams. Yeah. And that means that you and I, we work for the same company, but you work from your home office. I work from my home office. I might go into the office a couple of times a week if I live local, but even if I live in San Francisco, I'm still probably a remote worker, even though I can hop in an Uber or hop on, you know, the train or whatever and go into the office and be there in a half hour. But why waste the time? You know, and this is where I would revisit what I, what I want to talk about with resonance. And that whenever we're we're learning, no matter what thing, it's really helpful when we get feedback that's both immediate and specific. And so when you're by yourself and you don't have any in- interaction with other people, how can you get any feedback? I mean, you're losing most of the nonverbal communication and you also don't have um, all of the voice inflections or facial expression. Have you ever tried to, you know, be sad, feel sad, and smile at the same time. Try it. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty hard. Right, because facial expression is exactly what's involved when it comes to empathy, which is relationships. Uh, I was reading a research article recently, and it talked about you know how um, couples who are together a really long time end up sort of looking like each other. Uh-uh. Never heard that's <laughs> yeah. And so um, what they've looked at is when we actually empathize with other people, facial expression is really key within that. And so when you empathize with the partner you're with over and over and over again, your face begins to make the same creases and facial expression as it relates to where somebody else is emotionally. Wow. Right? Say it so, is. so that's that's creepy. <laughs> Well, they've, again, this is sort of the hotbed when it comes to um, neuroscience these days is mirror neurons. And these mirror neurons are what are involved with empathy. And so mirroring, meaning I, I get another person's emotional world. And so one of the research um, studies looked at Botox. And what they found is that Botox, because it it actually um, assists in paralyzing facial muscles. Right. But then, then you can't contort your face, so you don't get wrinkles. 
but actually levels of empathy go down. Mm-mm. <laughs> right. Because your physical appearance can't reflect your inner appearance. You're, yeah, you got it. And so when you're working in these remote locations, it, it might facilitate better work or more focus, and it allows people to be distributed and to capitalize on the talents across the country, right? Yeah. Wow. So that, see, that's like a treasure trove, in my opinion. <laughs> Talking about in a scientific way, you know, not just like, hey, this is my opinion yep. uh, about all the cons of that, because I think what we can do is still have remote work, but do it in more healthy ways. Because I'm, I'm fully, I mean, I've been self-employed remote worker since 2006. Now I'm a unique animal. I know, I know, I know that. My wife knows that. Right. And I'm fine with it. I'm a good human being, but I've got some flaws and I'm willing to accept and share those to some degree. And I think the problem is, is we just, we just lack more, maybe a more purposeful or intentional feedback loop. Yeah. Which I think is, is super important to being able to operate in this world in just good ways. I don't know, healthy ways is probably the, the best way to use in this show context is healthy ways. That's a preview of Brain Science. If you love where we're going with this, send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released. Email us at editors at changelaw.com. In the subject line, put in all caps, Brain Science, with a couple bangs if you're really excited. You can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search in your podcast app for Change All Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows, and even those that only hit the master feed. Again, changelaw.com slash master. Music.